Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwell-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to um, our first fall segment really of Regenerative by Design where we're bringing on some fantastic guests. So thank you for joining us. We're going to be getting to the root of health, climate, food, economic, food and economics in a really amazing way today with our guests Anne Bickley and Dr. David Montgomery. So welcome guys. Yeah. Hey, Joni, great to be here. Yeah, thanks. Good to see you. It is great to see you. I have had the amazing honor to be on panels with both of you at certain points over the last year and always just so inspired by what you're working on. And it's so big picture and so unique. And I'm just excited for you to tell our audience about A, your books, B, your work that you do in general, and see like what people can do to to get involved in this movement if they're not in food agriculture or the sciences so we're gonna we're gonna start with you guys just telling us a little bit about you know what your background is and 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 that you're married and that you work on these things together and you come from a really amazing union of biology meets geology and geomorphology but a lot of our listeners might not know what geomorphology is so if you could introduce yourselves briefly and talk a little bit about what your career path has been and what brought you to where we are today? Well, sure. Maybe, maybe I'll start since I'm the geomorphologist, that, that word that, that few people recognize, but that but everyone would recognize what it is that I study because that's topography, the lay of the land. Uh, so a, ge- a geomorphologist is the kind of geologist who studies the processes that shape the surface of the earth. And it's where we live out our lives. It's what we farm on and it's where, you know, what helps grow our food. Um, and I came to looking at soils through sort of a circuitous path. Uh, I studied erosion as a natural process in terms of what shapes the land. And I got into thinking in, about the relationship of human societies to the land, the way we treat the land, through writing a book about the history of soil erosion, which it turned out ended up as a book about the history of farming. And um, I had the fortune to marry a biologist. And we looked at the, you know, the things that degrade land that that, that history book on, on that dirt the erosion civilizations went into um, and was restoring life to our, the soil in our yard and completely reversing the things I was writing about in the book. And that opened the door to us collaborating on thinking about how you solve the problem of soil degradation. And that led us you know, on to several other books and culminating in the one that you were um, uh, mentioning, What's Your Food Ate? Yeah. Awesome. Well, and uh, so I'm kind of what I call a free range biologist, Joni, because I like to, um, I like sort of all, nearly all aspects of biology from the teeny tiny cellular stuff going on all the way up to the ecosystem and planetary level. So, and, and what I guess is most intrigues me about that these days is 
just the relationships between plants and the soil. And so that has, of course, you know, huge implications for how we grow our crops. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, that all ripples out, you know, at some point to the animal body. And then that all ripples, you know, uh, rolls on up into our bodies. And so that was, you know, I, I said that in just, you know, a few short words, but that's that kind of idea that the linkages between all of those things, um, th- that they're real, they exist, and that farming affects them is sort of a how we got to this point of writing the latest book, um, What Your Food Ate. So it's sort of like, you know, Dave and Dirt, he sort of laid out the plight and the problem of soil. So, and it, there's not really a good ending to that book, <laughs> but yeah, but I, I, I like sometimes that. people are like, oh my gosh, it's depressing. I'm like, yeah, but you have to understand it to see how we can fix it. Right. It's like, right. You know, it's like studying exactly. disease in order to figure out a cure. Like, exactly. It's part of that yeah. cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Proper diagnosis is the first step. Yeah. yeah. And then when we wrote the hidden half, it was sort of like, oh, actually, these are the insights. This is the science about how we can turn the soil around. And when you turn, you know, when you're able to turn the soil around, that has all kinds of implications. And what I, what I mean by turn the soil around is bring it back to life, get, you know, everything from earthworms to the microbial communities that are in there that plants need for their own health. Um, yeah. So that was all, we kind of laid that out in the hidden half of nature along with, uh, the, did some stuff on the human microbiome there, which is always fascinating. And then of course, growing a revolution was like, well, Dave and I aren't farmers, although I, you know, I do have a bad case of plant lust and have grown and killed a few plants in my lifetime. Uh, he, yeah. he went around and, um, and he's like, well, yeah, w- what are these farmers doing? And it's like, oh, they're kind of doing the same thing I was doing, except you know, in a different setting and different, you know, Mm -hmm. equipment and tools and so on. And so all of that just naturally enough led to, well, what are, what are, what is the effect of farming practices on our food then? You know, are we, Mm -hmm. are we supporting these microbial communities that are in large part uh, actually moving a lot of nutrients into plants? And, and we can get into this later, but, you know, just to say we define, we, you know, all of us, uh, unless you read the book, that is, um, we define nutrients too narrowly. It's yeah. not just, it's not just what we think, you know, what a nutrition textbook might say, or what's on the back of a label on, um, you know, a jar or something like that. It's turning out to be a whole lot more. Yeah. I, we definitely have an overly reductionistic view of what nutrition is. And it's, unfortunately cuts out 90% of the magic of, of like what is responsible for health and flourishing and, and nourishing um, animals and, and all things in nature. And I just, I love that you guys have this balanced perspective because it's so important. If you're truly trying to understand this nexus point between, you know, the geology, like the, basically the atmosphere and the lithosphere, like how they come together. And I love what Ray Arcoletta always says is, and he may have gotten it with, from you guys, I don't know, but he always says, well, you have to remember that biology eats geology and that's what makes all of this biology possible and all this ecology possible. And I, when I first heard that, it really kind of rocked my world. Cause I'm like, I never really thought about it like that, that 
biology has the ability to eat geology and that that sets the stage for all things on the planet that we know as life. Yeah, with, with the one wrinkle that, you know, we can't eat rocks, so we need other biology to pre-digest them for us and, you know, extract things like the zinc and the iron and the copper that we need in our bodies and that occur naturally in rocks. Um, and that's where the, the importance of microbial life, the bacteria and fungi in the soil really come into play because they're mm -hmm. actually pretty good at breaking down rocks and getting those elements that that life needs that you know those those snacks that biology depends yeah. on um into biological circulation yeah absolutely so i find it fascinating david that the very first time i ever heard your name and learned about your work was through your book salmon king of fish i grew up on the oregon coast so salmon fishing is legacy to my family like it's part of our community it's part of like our cultural identity really and and i'm not native american heritage but even just second generation people living on the Oregon coast. It's a deep, deep resonance for us. And that book was really ground shaking to people who work with um, fisheries in a very close way. And, and I thought it was so intriguing that you as a geomorphologist had written a book about the biological interface and how humans shape the destinies of entire species. And what led you to first start thinking about this other than living with a biologist and really smart, amazing person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, I, when I was offered the job at the University of Washington, you know, when I got, got out of grad school, it was to run a research program that was looking at how human actions, in particular forestry practices, influence salmon. Um, and the link there is erosion, you know, how, you know, clear cutting causes landslides and, mm -hmm. and so on and introduces sediment to environments that could impact fish. So, I had I came to, to the state of Washington, um, you know, excited to have a new job and to have research to do. And um, and I had worked on landslides and hillsides and uh, rivers and I hadn't really thought much about fish. But, you know, moving to the northwest, it's salmon are you know iconic. It's part of the cultural identity of the region. They are. Um, and they're lovely and they're an incredibly good food that can repopulate if we just leave them enough leeway to actually replenish their, their population. Um, and I got very interested in those connections between how people treat the land and how that then cascades into effects that are sort of unintended and unanticipated by those doing the managing of the land. Sort of the way that, you know, upland forestry can affect, you know, coastal fishing, for example, through the connections on how the rivers work. And, you know, I got really interested in those connections between human systems and ecological systems. And I think that colored in great ways the, the way I approached the Dirt book, which is the second popular science book that I wrote. Um, and I had an interest in trying to reach out to people sort of beyond journals and beyond the, you know, the, the audiences I was trained to write horribly stultifying, boring language for in journals. Um, and it was much more interesting to be able to write about topics where you could play a little with language, dig into the history, bring some science into bear and actually try and get a viewpoint across to try and, um, you know, to make an argument. And so each of our books is essentially um, meant to be entertaining and a good read, but it's also, they have a point. Um, and an awful lot of nonfiction books you read these days are either, uh, you know, overly, um, overly preachy, shall I say, or they yeah. are, they don't really have a point. They're just telling you, hey, I went and did this, then I went and did that. And we're trying to combine meaning and content. Um, mm -hmm. in this book, I think, mm -hmm. and Anne's shaking her head. So I think, yeah. I think I'm yeah. on the right track. Shaking my I'm head. Yes. That up, Cause that's actually a really important thing. Um, I living in that tension point, like, you know, Western Oregon where 
you know, our livelihoods were based on fish until the really big collapse in the 80s of the salmon fisheries and timber, which again collapsed because of over overly aggressive management of forest lands and farming, you know, Tillamook area, cattle, et cetera. And so it's like living in that crosshairs and being very sensitive to the fact that you don't want to, you know, some of my dearest family members and friends are loggers or commercial fishermen or farmers. And you don't want to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. What you've been doing forever is killing us because they take it personally. So I like the lens in which you deliver this information and that it's like very reasonable and it makes so much sense and it helps you go, how are we going to move forward and continue to grow timber, which we need, and harvest fish, which we need, and do the farming, which we need, but do it better and more mindfully? Yeah, you just nailed it. That's exactly the deal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, and I think that, that that recipe in terms of looking back through history, it allows people to try and get a lens on what we're doing today that's really not political. It's not confrontational. You know, all the right. people involved are dead and have been dead for a long time. <laughs> um, and, and so it allows you sort of the space to reconsider things and to understand the, you know, the historical arcs that led us to practices we consider conventional today. But if there's one lesson you can really take from the last 10,000 years of, of human history, it's that what we're doing today is not going to be what our descendants do. I mean, they're going to have mm -hmm. new ways of doing things, hopefully better ways of doing things different perspectives, different culture. I mean, it's our, our history is one of constant change. As much as we own, we all like our own culture and we're creatures of habit on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, mm -hmm. one of the secrets to our success globally has been our adaptability. And so yeah. I think there's a lot of value to being able to, you know, sort of reconsider and rethink what we consider to be common practices and reevaluate them for the future. And I think we're there you know, with, with salmon, with forestry, and in particular, we're there with agriculture and farming these days. And that's why Dan and I have spent so much time, you know, working on these books and trying to pull the story of agriculture together in a way that's uh, entertaining and informative. And we hope enlightening in terms of what the op the good options for the future actually are. And we do have them. Right. It's like a rethinking our toolkit for resiliency um, and I think that that's a really great way to deliver information to people because it's like disarming instead of taking it like with this defensive positioning. It's like, oh, gosh, this is inspiring. Like there's actually a way where we can do this in a new way that it's a challenge um, in a good way, like a beneficial challenge, if that makes sense. So I just think it's such a fascinating perspective. And, it, and this is why I'm like, man, how do we get this to be like a required curriculum in schools or something just to get people to challenge their way of thinking and use history as a very constructive tool towards writing best, better history, which is great. Yeah, I, yeah, that's what you just said is really, um, it applies on a, in a lot of different ways. I think if we can look at what we used to do historically and tweak that based on what we've learned and how our understanding changes about things. That seems to me to be, um, you know, humanity has a lot of hallmarks. We don't always learn the lesson <laughs> that we need to from things, but I think with soil and agriculture, there's huge potential to learn, to learn, to learn new things and to enact them, you know, out there on the land, on farms and on ranches. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that we always say, and this is, you know, also based on our personal experience, just, you know, 
building a garden, it was really kind of extraordinary how quickly the soil turned around. It was, <laughs> you know, we started with this just awful stuff and, and, and that's kind of the story of the hidden half of nature is, is what happened in the process of building that garden. But within a few years, Joni, like we started to see changes. And then, you know, by five or seven years, it just, the soil got better and better. And it was sort of like, well, wait a minute, we didn't bring in a bunch of, um, you know, jugs and bottles and bags of stuff. Well, actually there was some bag, there was a lot of bags of organic matter, but it was stuff that I had scrounged and scavenged and brought home and not, you know, stuff like leaves and coffee grounds yeah. and wood chips and all of this organic matter. And mm -hmm. it, it truly is amazing when you change the diet of life. And so in this case, it was the life of the soil, how they then sort of trip this whole yeah. other sort of lever that, um, then benefits plants in, in, you know, a number of different ways. So there's not a lot in the environment these days. I mean, we're having trouble dealing with the atmosphere and changing what we're doing to the atmosphere. But so, and in fact, I mean, soil is a part of that. If we get more life in soil, it can be a place that we can stash carbon. And sure. this is, this is one of the things that's so exciting about it is that uh, there's just a lot, there's, there's untapped potential there, but it's somehow, Joni, we've got to get people more interested in, in and more mm -hmm. excited about soil, you know? Yeah, we it's do. It's hard. It's hard to do that. It is. We're trying, and, and We're trying though. I always love to find out where somebody's like soil interest started because we're somewhat of a small and obscure group of people <laughs> who are soil focused and I'm always like, what was like your gateway experience like to soil loving behavior? Um, it's kind of a funny thing. It's like a culture. But like for me, it was going to the desert southwest and being out in um, Utah in particular and seeing the cryptobiotic crust and the oh. very delicate and intricate communities that are live out there. And you can see them in, in such dry area that it really makes it like the demonstration of how that biology works together is right in your face. And it's very mm -hmm. easy to see how, how complex that is and how it nourishes life. Cause you can see all the stages of that progression right in front of your face. And I know for me, that was one of my mom, like must do events with my kids. We have to go to Utah. They will learn what cryptobiotic crust is and why it's so important. And what do you know now, whenever we're driving around, my kids can recognize healthy soil that has higher organic matter content and ones that are more mineral focused and dirt focused. And it like set them on a trajectory that I don't think they'll ever look at the world the same again. I don't know how we get that kind of a similar experience widespread and scaled to other people that can't just transport to, you know, the middle of nowhere in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had uh, a bit of an experience like that, uh, actually in our yard when I was finishing writing dirt where, um, and had uh, noticed, if I recall correctly, that the, the soil had started getting darker and she sort of called me out to sort of look at the, a, a corner of it. I was like, wow, yeah, that's different. We dug over in the parts that hadn't received as much uh, attention. They were lighter the way it had been. And we started realizing that, oh, this is like just starting to change in a way that we can detect with our senses in just a couple years. 
And, you know, and I'd been schooled in the idea that it takes centuries to make an inch of topsoil. And yet here, this stuff was changing, you know, in years, right, by, right outside our back door. And it really kind of flipped the switch in terms of thinking, my thinking in terms of, oh, well, if you have all the, the mineral matter, we had plenty of the geology in the yard. We had, we had the, the, <laughs> the soil particles. But the, what, what could be restored really fast was the biology. And that led us off into thinking about, well, you know, how important is that? What does it do? And it really is the key to understanding uh, rebuilding soil fertility on a time scale that, you know, it, someone other than a geologist would think is fast. Yeah, and I think like this would be a great po point for you guys to just discuss your perspective on like um, plants as farmers and microbiota players, like all these little tiny microscopic critters that live in the soil they're all influencing one another either through exudates of sugars, enzymes, um, phytochemicals, and it creates this whole cascade, like all these different cycles of nutrient cycles, water cycles. It's like a cascade of reactions that creates a community that can thrive and that makes life flourish. And I, I think it's a very fascinating perspective to think of plants as their own farmers. They're farming microorganisms um very intentionally and that can be a very deep i mean people dedicate their lives to just studying that part of it um but how do we invite people into that experience that we're not the only organism that has intentional ecology yeah and it it's interesting to use that that word farming and put it in that context uh but i think that that is I mean, that's really kind of what is happening. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing to me that's most fascinating about that is that the things that we can see with our eyes that we can pick up and touch and hold, like, you know, it's right in our face. And so we can, we get it, we can understand it. And so I like to talk about the relationship between plants and soil and microbes in terms of, um, the root system of a plant, because you can you can pretty much sort of liken that to sort of a, a, a you know a community. It could be mm -hmm. you know whatever you want to call it a rural community or urban community. What we have here are organisms that are interacting daily all the mm -hmm. time, and plants drive that largely through the exudate production that you mentioned. And it's also helpful, I think, to to uh, maybe draw a picture for people, literally, like everyone knows generally, oh yeah, the root system of a plant. Well, a root system of a plant is really a pretty extensive thing. And I always think about it as this sort of halo-like area. And with inside of that halo, it's really different than outside of the halo in sort of the, the soil at large that doesn't have any roots in it. And uh, I call it a biological bazaar because there is no end of activity and trades and exchanges and lots of intelligence also that's being passed back and forth. And that's something I think we don't have, we don't maybe talk about enough when we talk about the soil microbiome and how plants are um, developing and maintaining relationships with microbes. It's, it is about food. It is about these, you know, the exudate production and it's about the fungi that fetch phosphorus and other things, but it's also a lot about the metabolites 
that these microbes are making after they consume exudates. And so these are compounds and molecules that the plant is not making because it cannot make them. And so it needs this community of microbes to um, be providing these other things. And so this is, this is, if you think about nutrition, there's a, a paper called the dark matter of nutrition. And I love that phrase because it tells cool. us a lot that we don't, that we don't understand or know yet about uh, everything that plants are getting out of the soil. You know, you look at agronomy stuff, agronomy research and papers, and it's usually about, you know, uptake of all of the dead rocks. <laughs> so the zinc, mm-hmm. the iron, phosphorus, and so on. Microbial metabolites, you know, they're starting to get mentioned, but there's also, uh, Right. Plants and microbes can't talk. They don't share a common language unless you consider all of these chemicals that uh, each is producing that the other can interpret. And that becomes uh, the intelligence of nature that these you know, two completely different kinds of organisms are using to communicate, to stay alive and, and thrive. And so the more you get into this biological bazaar and you, you see how these cycles that you had mentioned, nutrient cycling, water cycling, they're really foundational to the health and well-being of these, you know, the plant communities and crops, basically, and the microbial communities in the soil. And if you stop for just a minute, and we were talking about history before, stop for just a minute and, and go, gosh, where, where did this all come from and why is it happening? And you go back to long before farmers ever existed, gardeners or even human beings, and you look at how the very first land plants sort of got, you know, onto land and how was it then that they succeeded to the point that our entire planet, except where we've, you know, paved things or removed plants, um, much of the planet, even in water, is got a lot of plants in it or on it. And this is because mm-hmm. this foundational relationships, uh, at least between land plants and soil microbes, um, is what got these plants going in the first place. So there were no agrochemicals involved. There were no farmers, no gardeners. Plants had this stuff figured out all on their own, and they mm-hmm. retain it to this day. You know, people, a lot of people think, well, that's just in wild plants. That's, that's not the case. It's in our domesticated plants, too. You cannot... Um, domestication doesn't, you know, remove everything from a plant. It's just, it's a tweaking of the genome, but there's some fundamentals that remain embedded in the green bodies of plants that drive these symbiotic relationships in the soil. Yeah, that the, the concept of symbiosis being such an important driver to healthy biological systems. I mean, it's something that to me, I look around today and I look at I feel like cultures got a lot of tension. I mean, human history has a lot of tension all the time. But right now, I feel like there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of angry people. And then you look at like this disconnect that's happened now with our agricultural system and our food system because we've kind of removed and sterilized it and got rid of this middle, you know, layer, this microbial layer that is so responsible for closing a lot of these gaps and making sure our food is rich in micronutrients, which helps drive healthy populations that are lower incidence of irritation and 
disease and, and, you know, like what the studies with the rats and um, what your food ate, you talk about that. And I think that there's a lot of things that we should think about today when people look out at society and go, oh my goodness, like everybody's so angry and there's so much disease and so much mental health. What is causing this? It's easy to blame the easy things like politics or whatever, but honestly, that doesn't solve anything. Like looking at the root of what our food system is and how that creates the foundation for good human flourishing and good animal or organismal flourishing is really important. And you guys talk a lot about that and you're very articulate. So I'd love for you to, you know, give that some time. Hmm. You want to go for it. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, um... like to the left or right, but um, I just think it's something so important and, and I'm really motivated after, you know, being deep into audible these last couple of weeks um, with your latest book. So it's very top of mind. Um, when, when Anne and I started looking into what it would take to restore fertility to the world's farmland, um, you know, we sort of ran across uh, suites of practices that could rebuild soil life and, you know, rebuild soil organic matter. And it got us into thinking about well, what are the connections between healthy soil and what gets into our food, into our crops, into our livestock, and then therefore thereby into our bodies. And, you know, in sort of digging into that, we ended up focusing on a few key things where there's pretty compelling evidence that farming practices influence what ends up in our food. And those things are um, things like uh, micronutrients, you know, certain vitamins and mineral elements that we need. We don't need a ton of, but we need that little bit, an awful lot. Those can be influenced by things like tillage, the act of plowing. They can be influenced by the overuse of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers. Um, there's, um, you know, the amount of what are known as phytochemicals, plant-made chemicals. Some of the compounds Anne was mentioning earlier that plants make in response to environmental stimuli that they make for their own purposes to build their own, to maintain their own health or for, to maintain communication with, with uh, other species or others of their species. But those compounds can act as things like antioxidants or anti-inflammatories when they get into us and farming practices can influence their abundance in foods. Um, the, uh, the amount and balance of certain fats in our meat and dairy uh, can be greatly influenced by what it is our livestock ate. Uh, in ways that you can trace through to you know, um, effects that people have um, shown in uh, in the medical sciences. Um, and there's also the, the issue of um, the microbial metabolites that Anne was mentioning earlier. The way we treat the soil affects the life in the soil and who's there and what they're eating affects the metabolites they make. And that affects what's get, what gets into our plants and, and, and our, our animals and ourselves. Um, and so there's these areas that farming practices definitely influence what gets into our food. But one of the complications is in how we choose, how we would define nutrients, you can come up with different answers as to whether farming practices affect nutrition. Because there was probably the least amount of evidence that we saw for big differences in like macronutrients, the kind of things that, you know, things like calories, you know, the, just the, um, the basic provisioning of things we need to live um, and support our bodies energetically. Don't, there don't seem to be, you know, as big in effects on that. And of course, there's, you know, plant breeding effects that and, you know, just thinking in terms of like promoting uh, yields, high yields, we've essentially undermined uh, the other part of the equation, which is the quality of our food. And there's other things that go into it. And things like phytochemicals and uh, microbial metabolites, those aren't really considered nutrients in the nutritional sciences because we don't need them to live. 
But right. there's all kinds of evidence that suggests that they help us to thrive when we have them. And so, you know, we're, we've sort of argued in What's Your Food Ate that in terms of the way we frame agronomy and frame thinking about agriculture, we need to move beyond thinking about simply feeding the world, which is really has focused on the provision of calories, yield above everything else, and move and shift to a focus more uh, based on nourishing the world with a broader definition of what we mean by nutrients. The things that will help us thrive and, and remain healthy being a key part of it. And what would I miss? No, I think that was a good wrap. Okay. Yeah, that was a good summary. I think the, the one thing that, um, or the only thing I might add to that is that the world of, of, of soil and plants and as well as, you know, farm animals and their own diet and, and the way that they're, respective microbiomes modulate what they're eating is um i guess it's it it's a really different way to think about something uh if you think about it as is the process in place versus uh is this one nutrient missing and should i go buy that and add it to the system because i think overall what we've learned about the soil and you know, in the context of agriculture is that the more we focus on setting up processes like nutrient cycling and moisture retention in the soil and, and we align our practices to build out that kind of a process, it gets us to the outcome that I think we're all looking for when we talk about changing the food system to get, you know, to make our plant and animal foods more nutrient dense and to ensure that they have the things that they're mm -hmm. supposed to have in them, right? Like squashes, you know, they're supposed to have beta carotene and so are carrots. Um, our animal foods are supposed to be having, um, you know, a good balance of omega-6 to omega-3s. They're also supposed to be, you know, an abundance of some of these other really beneficial fats. One is, is conjugated a linoleic acid or CLA. There's all of these things that we know that diet and practices affect outcome and that there's a process that goes with that. And so I like to think about how do we get these processes kind of, you know, back up and running. And I mean, the pandemic in some ways is about a bunch of broken processes. <laughs> when you talk about what's right. gone on with supply chain and and all of those kinds of things and lack of workers and, and, mm -hmm. and so on. Those processes have had a big, big hiccup. And if we can somehow get things back on track, then everything that flows out of those processes gets us to the outcome, you know, that we want, which in the case of the pandemic is, you know, an economy that's back up and running, people are employed, you know, livelihoods are, are, are working out for folks. And in the soil, of course, that crops are able to defend and protect themselves because of the farming practices, not mm -hmm. because we are trying to compensate for biology with all of these, um, you know, costly inputs. Yeah, that's a really important point right there. Um, Anna, I'd love for us to focus on that a little bit for a moment, because with our current farming systems, we have augmented these like really narrow focused um single items and we give them as fertilizers or we use them as pesticides or we use them as herbicides and um you know and that can be really 
a fantastic thing if there's like an urgent issue that needs to be immediately corrected. Um, just like in a medical setting, antibiotics are a similar concept or like the things that we apply in ICU. It's like a very focused, intensive therapeutic intervention. But what the parallels that we see between health and farming systems on small and large levels, and there's a lot of synergies there. And I feel like there's this movement back to nourishing the system so that it's producing the things that it needs. Like with our ag systems, you know, are you planting the right crop varieties for your area where you're setting your soil up to have a lot of the things it needs without additional inputs? Just like in a human body, are you getting the right nutrition you need so that you're going to have optimal health without augmenting with additional inputs? And I think for people, that might be a a, a gateway for them to become more interested in agriculture and in soil sciences because there are so, so, so many similarities. And I think people post-COVID are much more aware and thinking about, um, you know, how to lay the foundation of good health, both for us and for our planet. Yeah, exactly. And we sort of know that, you know, from, you know, personal experience with our own immune systems that, you know, the best way to sort of like the steps you could take to proactively maintain your health are going to be to try and do the things that could help you keep a robust immune system to keep your defenses up. And if you start thinking about soil health similarly, well, it's the life in the soil that really provides that defensive system. Um, you know, plants don't have an immune system in the way that we think about it, but they have an immune system, but it's developed greatly through partnerships with soil life that they've sort of out, they've offshored, if you will, things like the provisioning of certain chemicals that, that the um, life in the soil will make or, or, or make and then stimulate the plant to then make um, other phytochemicals. So you can kind of think of the the rhizosphere, the zone around roots that Anne was talking about earlier, as sort of an inside out version of us, where they've um, a lot of the di- pre- a lot of pre digestion occurs out in the root zone. A lot of the communication that goes on, you know, in our own colon with our own with our microbiome and our immune system within us, that's happening in the root zone in plants. But the functions are very similar. It's just the geography that's it's inside out. <laughs> um, yeah, and right. if you think about, you know, the preventive medicine as a good way to try and support our own health, then, you know, we could think about, well, what farming practices would be preventive medicine for the soil and soil health? And that turns out to be the kind of practices that can help build soil organic matter, stimulate, build soil life, things like uh, no-till or minimal, minimal chemical and physical disturbance of the soil. So minimizing but not necessarily completely eliminating agrochemical inputs, um, minimizing, but not necessarily completely eliminating tillage. It depends on what kind of system you're in and where you're at. A little bit of those at times might be like your analogy of antibiotics in the hospital when you really need them. Neither Anne nor I would be alive if it wasn't for antibiotics. Um, right. We're very much in favor of them when people really need them, but we don't take right. them every day. Um, yeah. and, you know, and that's just crazy. Exactly. And when you look at the kind of practices in, that we now have in conventional agriculture with routine mechanical disturbance from over tillage, routine chemical disturbance from the over application of nitrogen fertilizers and herbicides in particular, um, you know, it's you that's kind of like taking an antibiotic pill every day um, for to maintaining our own health. It's counterproductive in the long run, even if at the short term it might be productive you know, today. Um, and that's where I think a big rethink is, is in order. And, you know, and perhaps if people start thinking about uh, soil as something that has health, 
or not, depending on how we treat it, but that there is such a thing as soil health. Um, it may help connect the dots between um, and, and lead people to the realization that, that Anne and I have come to, that essentially there's pretty sound science that we lay out in What Your Food Ate that supports the argument that when it comes to farming practices, what's good for the earth is good for us too. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. There is a lot of data that clearly demonstrates this. Um, it's not theoretical anymore. Like in my mind, there's a lot of evidence-based practice that should be shaping policy. It should be shaping practice. It should be shaping our cultural, um, you know, concepts around food and food selection and and really what the dietary guidelines are. And it's interesting to think like, you know, what the the, the disconnect between policy and dietary guidelines and agricultural practice and and then reality like it, it it's kind of a, a jumbled mess right now and it's it's a struggle to know like how we start to streamline this and what are the pain points that create opportunities for constructive conversation and you know in my position i do work with a lot of farmers and most of them are already like hey we want to do something different like this model that we've been farming has been really high pressure um, we don't like waking up in the morning and trying figuring out what we're going to kill um, in the morning because, like, we're we're farmers because we love we love to steward the land and and they're you know they're up against a lot of really intense things even beyond economics. I mean, the economics of farming are really challenging, but you know the the increase in species of both pests and weeds that are resistant to chemicals is a is a big deal, and I think that that's something that the average consumer who's eating plants can kind of wrap their head around because now we're all hearing about antibiotic resistant bacteria too. Again, the similarity of like human health and agronomic systems kind of being up against similar things. And you talk to farmers who would have never been open to thinking about organic practices just because they're conventional farmers. That's what they do. That's how they've been educated. That's what their dad and granddad did. But now they have pigweed that no matter what they put on it, it will not die. But then they go in and they plant rye and rye secretes stuff into the soil that helps suppress the opportunity, um, you know, to really get that weed going. And that's a level of interesting phytochemical um, community ecosystem um, synergy that I find to be super fascinating. And I think more and more people are interested in hearing this story because it's like very hopeful um, that like nature can beget nature and that we don't always need to come in with some high powered, you know, like, you know, crazy solution that's tech driven or chemistry driven. Nature actually has a lot of great solutions and we need to remember that. Yeah. And that's, and, you know, and it's, it's far more efficient to work with nature than it is to battle against her. And so in the yeah. places that we can do that, it makes sense to do so. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a that's an interesting. Um, you said something that made me think. Yeah, that's that's maybe how we can get people to think differently about how they farm, and also uh, at the same time help consumers see what a challenge farming is. And when you said that the, it's these pain points that create opportunities, that. And we, there's been a lot of pain points with supply chain disruptions and the price of fertilizers and those kinds of things, all those inputs. And I, I know farmers don't like to fork money over um, if, for things that they just see, you know, it's costing more and more and more and more because margins are so tight anyway. Yeah. And 
I also think it's just more, um, I don't, I've never talked to a farmer who is, is not interested in some aspect of soil biology, or they'll tell you some story about a particular um, season on their farm or their ranch where things were just completely different, either much, much better or much, much worse. And they wonder about that and they have, you know, curiosity around that. And I, I think actually consumers would be a lot more enamored with agriculture and farming if we were to talk about it in terms of, um, oh, some of these, some of these things that sort of reveal this deeper side of agriculture and farming, and that is the links to nature and the natural world. Because you had mentioned, um, uh, you know, planting rye and how rye is putting um, chemicals out into the soil that pigweed and probably other plants don't. Uh, it 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 makes it difficult for these weeds to get a foothold. And when you think about plant communities in the wild, this is going on all the time. You know, we look out on a meadow or a forest or something like that. And we think, you know, oh, that's great. That looks wonderful. But what we don't know is like all of these dynamic behaviors and interactions that are happening underground. And Mm -hmm. so when you begin to see a farm as, uh, you know, a system unto itself that is still tapping into some of these deep ecologic and biologic processes and you see the food that comes out of that system and then you think about the food that you're putting into your body for me that stimulates a lot of uh things that i want to know more about uh (laughs) farmers i want to know more about their practices and that that to me is a way that you know maybe consumers can can be an entry point for them because i i just drew this little picture (laughs) for myself of, of sort of the digestive tract on one side and the soil and, and crops on the other side. And those are two, those are two nutrient acquisition, nutrient processing systems. And if we can see that we're concerned about what we're putting into our own bodies, then I think we could also see it's not a leap at all to be concerned about what is it that we're putting in to nature's body, because I often call soil the greatest gut on earth, right? It's this vast yeah. expanse. It is. Uh, and there's, as they, you know, it's, it's sort of the external digestion, digestive system for plants. And so we really should be thinking about, yeah, you don't just, we just, we don't walk around every day willy nilly, just, you know, pouring things, you know, out of bowls and glasses and jugs like that into, into us. And so why, why are we doing that with the soil? And maybe let's step back and ask ourselves, what kind of a diet does the soil want? Yeah. And what kind of a diet a <laughs> is the soil going to thrive on? Because it's the beginning, right? It's the foundation for what ends up in our crops and our animals and, and us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a whole change of perspective. I'm really intrigued by the younger generation that's coming out of like the COVID era. Like these are the kids that were in school and they had this interruption that was profound and global and is affecting an entire global situation, like generation um, to really rethink about these systems. And, 
And to really grapple with the fact that once they find out that their generation is expected to have a shorter life expectancy than mine, like, I think a lot of them are kind of like, wait, we're, you expect us just to like, you know, accept this and be okay with this? Like, let's ask these hard questions. Let's really try to think about it. And I think they're going to ask the questions and be willing to put pressure to make these changes that like my generation either couldn't or didn't feel comfortable doing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, you can um, ask, you know, how is it progress for life expectancy to be dropping? That's sort of going the wrong way. Um, I, I see a lot of um, interest among undergraduates uh, in classes I teach these days in agriculture and food system reform. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, there's, there's a lot of sort of climate despair on campus, but there's also a lot of motivation to do stuff and to, to you know, do meaningful things with one's life to, that can help uh, improve the planet. Um, so I see, you know, I take um, a fair amount of optimism from the younger people that I'm around in my job uh, and seeing them because, you know, they're, they're energetic, they're motivated. Some of them are really angry, but some of them are really just trying to make things better. And um, mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of, I think that as time rolls forward, the proportion of people who are more and more interested in really grappling with rethinking and reframing the agricultural system and conceivably parts of the medical establishment are going to gain more and more traction um, because it makes sense to do so. Um, and I think that there's um, a lot of people are open to and interested in change. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting you bring up the climate despair, like, phenomenon because that's definitely a thing i i'm surprised actually at how many people bring it up to me in conversation and i'm like well i'm a botanist so like my whole love and life is all about the organism that's good at carbon drawdown in the first place so i don't find it to be as sad as other people do because i mean if you're a botanist that's what you've studied forever is like that's what plants do they're straws that pull carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the earth that's that is what they're good at um and it's a different perspective. And and what I find when I'm talking to people and they're like, I never thought about it like that. I'm like, yeah, I mean, we're all focused on creating some technology when really like the technology is right here. We just need to optimize it. We just need to really put some systems in place that like ramp up what nature has already perfected instead of completely trying to reinvent the wheel, which, you know, you'd think we've 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 learned the last few decades that we, that doesn't always work out so well the unexpected consequences even if it's very well intentioned i don't ever want people to feel bad for what happened in history with most things it's it was well intentioned but the unexpected consequences are problematic and so you know i'm like we need to you know to get our youth really excited about food systems and agriculture and and infuse all this amazing creativity and innovation that we're humans are good at and put it in the right place and focus it on these nature-based solutions that are going to help create a resilient world. Yeah, we, we tend yeah. to, we tend to overlook those billion year old technologies. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah right? photosynthesis is a pretty amazing, amazing one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny, but you know, they don't have the hype that like an IP backed technology does, right. you know, it's just this, like, how do we create that almost like sci-fi allure or mystique? Um, how do we bring that back? And I, you know, this is always my call to action to all the famous technology gurus out there in the world. It's like, get people excited about nature-based solutions. Um, let's get people excited about how we innovate using those tools rather than 
really this like drumbeat of like always trying to outsmart nature, always trying to design something brand new instead of design, you know, design is a thinking process using things that we already know are true and work. So, you know, that brings us to our final question of like, just this regenerative by design process, like, how do we create a world in which we're doing our design thinking? Like, how do we create cities and communities and food systems and health systems that have a, you know, regenerative philosophy at the core of what they are? It's a, it's a change in thinking and and it's a system-based thinking rather than a linear-based thinking model. Yeah. And I, I would just say one thing about that in it's that the more we can normalize regenerative thinking, then it becomes, oh, well, that's just how we think. I'm reminded often of when I was growing up, recycling was not a thing. You threw jars and cans into the garbage. Um, you would put your candy wrappers out the window as you drove down the highway, right? That, <laughs> that, that changed. Um, you know, somewhere, somewhere along the way so that, you know, now I, I, I wasn't, my father was too old. I was on him all the time. Dad, you should really be recycling this stuff. And he'd be like, well, it doesn't really matter. And so on and so forth. Yeah. And so, however, you know, Dave and I weren't so old by the time, you know, it was really clear we got to all recycle. And so somehow we need to get, I think this, um, the idea that regenerating um, regenerative techniques in farming, seeing the fact that nature has this whole regenerative cycling side and that that's where we start. We don't put that in some side alley and then go tap into it when the technology fails. That's kind of the main gig right there. And that it's normal and that the more we understand about it, the more we can um, support it. And, you know, when I think about the complexity of soil biology, or I think about the incredible work that the human immune system does, the way I think about it is, wow, there's not really anything I could build on the side that would do anywhere near as well as normal functioning immune response or normal functioning soil biology. So I'm putting my eggs in the basket of learning as much as I can about these two systems, parallel systems. They're about, you know, defense and protection and supporting that, you know, it's that to me seems to be the way to go. If we're looking to get um, better farming practices, more nutrient dense food and uh, healthier people. Awesome. And on that note, I just noticed the time I'm having so much fun talking to you guys, but you probably have other places to go today is my guess. Um, you're both in high demand because you're amazing people and uh, great thought leaders. And I'm just so happy that you are on this planet and you are talking about what you're doing and you're writing these books. And I'm going to put a plug in for all of the listeners today to check out your books, um, either in print or on Audible. They're all on Audible. I'm an audio person and they're fantastic. Share them with your friends because The more we talk about it and the more we have these conversations, the better we will all be. So thanks for your amazing work. And you guys give me a lot of hope. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Joni. And if people want to check us out, our website is um, dig the number two and then grow. So dig to grow.com. Dig to grow.com. 
Um, where else should they find out more about you? Oh, um, you know, when we can stomach it, we'll get onto Twitter and um, <laughs> and share yeah. stuff there. That's just been kind of fraught, you know, in the last few years. But there in our website, yeah. Yep, yeah, those are the easy ways. And if people want to contact us, they can contact us through the website. Um, that'll that'll reach us. Um, but Fantastic. It's one of the, the great things about uh, writing is that uh, you reach out and touch people. Uh, they can read stuff at their own pace and their own leisure. And we sort of view our job as trying to get people inspired and to get people thinking about this stuff. So, Joni, thanks. It's a pleasure yeah. to talk to you. Again. Yeah. And next time someone's on Twitter wondering where what has gone wrong in the world, go to what your food ate and it will start to answer and connect a lot of those dots. You'll say, we've got work to do, but we can do this. So on that note, um, awesome, guys. So wonderful to see you and have an awesome week. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.